Hello and welcome to Investorama. This is George. Uh, today we're talking about private equity, an industry that has built a narrative for outperformance while being less volatile than public equity and also a great diversifier. A new chapter in the story is that it used to be an exclusive asset class for VIP investors, only large institutions, but now it's becoming available to private investors, at least the very wealthy ones. But is it all a myth? And how should investors approach it? This is what I'll be discussing with my guest today, Trim Rickson. Trim is head of portfolio management at Gabler, a Norwegian independent advisor for large institutions like pension funds, insurance companies, but also family offices. Trim, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. As we're going to talk about something serious, I'd like to start on the light side and I'm going to share just a few seconds of the Blackstone holiday video as an introduction to our conversation. They did put a lot of work into that and also a lot of people and that uh, Schwarzman, who's worth $36 billion, is spending time on this. It's quite impressive. Yeah. I think it's reflecting in the fact that they have a lot of money to spend on PR measures and the quality may not be that high every time. Uh, quite amazing. Now, talking about figures, I want to share one document which you could say is the founding myth of private equity. There was yeah. research from the University of Harvard. It shows that the returns of private equity for the Yale endowment, who has made all this very popular, in this figure, the average 31.4% since inception, and it says 1978, 2002. We don't have a, a more recent update, but that's what we're talking about. So can you comment on this and can you help us to figure out what it means 30% per year? Is it po even possible? It could be possible, but it's it's likely not. The point is, if you take 31 or 30% return every year for 30 years, 1 million would have grown so big that it, it would dwarf the size of the endowment. So. It's not a figure that is investable. It's not a figure that is reinvestable. So if you look at the S&P, for example, in the past 70 years, it's had a geometric compound return of 10%. And everybody understands this. They can look at the S&P index and they can see that it has risen. And if you invested in one of the very early index funds in the 70s, 80s, you would have had the return that you look at on the chart. But when it comes to these numbers, they are not investable in the same sense. They are called internal rate of return. And that is a concept which is difficult to grasp and understand and explain here on the podcast. But it's the difference between internal rate of returns, IRRs, and geometric return is so big that it doesn't make sense to compare the two. If you use these kind of figures in the public space with people who are not professional investors who don't have the resources to really understand these figures, I think it is misleading because people compare always what the S&P or the Eurostox or the FTSE index, what these indexes have returned over the long term. 
And then they compare this 10% return or something with the figures that you see from the PE brochures. And it doesn't really add up. One academic looked at this, these figures many years ago, Professor Ludovic Kalippo, who used to be at Amsterdam and in the past five or eight years or something yeah, is at Oxford. He looked at these figures many years ago, and I believe Yale stopped publishing these figures after he wrote about this because they saw that these figures could be misleading in the public. And when they got these critical questions, they stopped publishing them in the way they are presented here. Yes, I'm glad you mentioned Ludovic Filippo, who's going to be a guest on this podcast very soon and whose book I think is extremely important. So indeed, I think it's very easy to get confused by saying, oh, the internal rate of return is that much. This is not what happened. It's a different measure. It's the internal rate of return. And indeed, it's complicated. And I'll link to a spreadsheet. This story is not only Yale. This used to be Yale because Yale popularized private equity. Even though David Swenson pioneered this asset class, he always cautioned about uh, ordinary people getting into this. If you don't have the resources, if you don't have the team to really deal with private equity, you shouldn't go into it, he said. But the thing is, if you look at marketing from different players in the private equity industry, they talk about this 30% return in private equity over 20 years time, over 30 years time. And it simply doesn't add up because if that were true, all the clients would be not only millionaires, but they would be billionaires. And that is not the case. Indeed. So let's continue this investigation. I'm also referring to a recent email I got from the Kaya Charter Alternative Investment Association. The title of the event is, will alternative equity continue to outperform? So maybe it's not 30% per year, but there's still this strong underlying message that at least it performs public equity. And here we can see a document from Blackstone. And just to highlight it here, the private equity at the top which exhibit a risk return, a return historically of 14%. And you could see stocks, US stocks at around 10%, and volatility is, of course, also high. How can we discern them from the reality here in something that's a lot more current, right? We're talking about something from 2023. Yeah, this is the latest brochure from Blackstone. And the first thing that really must be wrong here is volatility. And they translate volatility into risk at the top it says exhibit mm -hmm. one risk returns so they say that volatility is a good representation for risk there are two issues that i want to take with that the first is that the volatility in private equity it can't it can't be measured properly because you have appraisal values private equity values are not the market to market it is not a market that sets the value it's done by hand or by experts so it's appraisal values and if you look at Appraisal values across many different examples, real estate, or even if you look at the target price of Wall Street analysts, all the stocks that are in the MSCI world or in the S&P 500 index, you will see that these values, these target prices, the appraisal values of Wall Street analysts, they move more slowly, much more slowly, and are not as volatile as the market prices. So appraisal values, will be much more damped than market prices. Then this dot with private equity and also with the private real estates and private credit here, it's an aggregation, it's a basket of many different funds. And these funds, they have different reporting standards. Some funds report their values as if they lag the market by one month. 
And the second fund report their values as if their values were laid by two months and then three months and four months. So if you add these together, you have what I call um, the reporting lag time diversification factor. And that also adds to the dampening of the observed volatility in, in, in private equity. Third, you have something else which dampens the volatility, the observed volatility in private equity, private credit and private real estate. And it's the very high performance fees. So these performance fees, they are asymmetric. It means that you cut the upside of the return distribution while you keep all the downside of the return distribution. And I put on an Excel sheet on LinkedIn illustrating this, where I can show that these asymmetric fees will probably dampen the volatility of uh, private equity returns by somewhere between 10 and 30%. So if you add this together, if you add this together, you, first you have the appraisal value thing, and then you have the reporting lags, and then you have the asymmetric feeds. If you add all this together, you could argue that 80% of the volatility in a time series can be removed as if by magic. <laughs> Therefore, this volatility, these absurd volatility figures for private equity, private real estate and private credit, they don't make sense if you compare it to listed assets like US high yield or US stocks and global stocks. The method be behind the valuation is not the same. And if the method behind two types of valuations is, is, is not the same, you can't really compare the two. So uh, ballpark, if you were to get a grasp on what may be the real volatility in the private credit, private real estate, private equity, if those asset classes were put on a stock exchange, you could multiply by somewhere between four and five maybe. And if you look then at private equity, private equity has normally been highly leveraged. That's where the L in LBOs comes from, leveraged buyouts. And if you have two times the leverage in private equity as you have in listed stocks, it's better too. And from that perspective alone, you should expect higher risk and also volatility in leveraged buyouts than in listed stocks. So the volatility thing here in, in, in these private assets, it's, it's like a garbage in, garbage out. It's, 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 in my view, it, this is misleading. It's misleading to put on a sheet like this, the observed volatility of private assets with the observed volatility of listed assets. You've been very convinced. Volatility is not what it seems. First, they say volatility when they talk about risk, and then indeed, it's not at all comparable to public assets, but Eventually, all that matters are the returns, right? So can we get to that? And the returns here, they are, if you look at the bubble that says private equity, those figures come from Cambridge Associates. And the Cambridge Associates figures, they are not investor returns. So it's not like you invested in Berkshire Hathaway in the 1960s and held on to that stock. If I compare the private equity returns of Cambridge Associates with the private equity returns of US pension funds, I find that there is a big, a huge gap here. The actual returns in private equity based on actual experiences in pension funds in America, the returns have been three to four percentage points lower in practice than what you see from, from Cambridge Associates. So with these databases, there are some caveats here. You should ask, did I put some IRR, internal rate of return data into it? 
have they really been lucky getting rid of all the biases? For example, are the bad ones, some of the bad funds, are they not represented in this figure? So there are some caveats here. Therefore, I would caution against using these, these database figures from, from Cambridge and also some other vendors. If you use that naively, you could uh, le be led into believing that returns are a bit higher than they have been in practice. And if you look at the SEM benchmarking data from the consultancy SEM benchmarking, if you look at the actual investor returns from American pension funds, you would see that the returns are quite a bit lower than the Cambridge data makes you believe. Yeah, that's something that I often look at for private assets in general. Basically, all the data is not created equal. And there's a lot of charts like this on the platform as well, where mm. we see the outperformance. But it's not because you can create two charts that the charts are the same yeah. thing. As you said, if you do an S&P chart, it's an investable chart. You can buy one point and sell at the other point with a very small bid offer spread. You can produce a, a chart based on data on private equity, but if it's not fully investable, then you need to really think about what it is. Because it's data, not, they are not investable. They can't really be compared to the listed assets, which are invest, investable. And therefore, I always prefer, if something is not investable, then I prefer to look at actual investor experiences. And then SEM marking is a very good source. And recently, there was also a paper in, I think it was a journal of finance, uh, which looked at the data from State Street and uh, clients uh, within the State, State Street system. And it looked at investor returns in private equity since 1980. And it is a much more moderate view on historical private equity returns than these numbers that will lead you into believing. Yes, and it brings a very interesting question about the marketing. But just continue on this private equity myth building. The natural conclusion from what we've seen before, which was on the brochure, low volatility, high returns. So the next step in the argument is that it makes a lot of sense to allocate to private equity because it's non, not volatile, high return, and also because it's non-correlated and diversified. With a gear mindset, I would say private equity sounds a lot like equity. Therefore, there's going to be such a correlation with the equity market. Yeah, it's true that the private equity industry says that uh, if you buy private equity, you get a lot of diversification benefits. But if you look at these data that they use, they use the, the volatility figures from these databases, Cambridge and, uh, and things like that. But you can't use those data in order to calculate correlations and things like that because you can't, they're not comparable. If you put data from private equity series, into a spreadsheet where you have listed assets, you'll just get noise and nonsense. It's a bullshit approach. So you're led into believing that you have huge diversification benefits, but all the diversification benefits comes from uh, the appraisal values, different from market prices, right? And then you have this reporting lag time diversification, and you also have this asymmetric fees which leads you into believing that you have something with low volatility, but it's not lowering the risk, keeping the costs. So the spreadsheet will fool you into believing that the volatility in this asset class is low, the correlation with stocks is low. And if you then add a private equity portfolio, you will get huge diversification benefits. The thing that people don't tell you is that if you buy a private equity fund, you will not get a part of the private equity segment because you will just buy one sample, 10 or 20 or maybe 50 private companies. 
And private equity is not scalable in the same way as if you buy the MSCI World. If you buy an MSCI World index tracker, you will get a representative slice of the value creation across all firms in the world, right? Whereas if you buy a private equity fund, you will just get exposure to those 50 companies. And those 50 companies are not necessarily representative of what happens in the unlisted space. In other words, when you load up on private equity funds, you get a lot of unsystematic risk, which adds to the volatility of a portfolio. And this, this, this point is not captured at all in the database series because the database series assume that you could buy all the private equity funds in the world, but that's not possible because you need, need a little, at least 1 million or more to invest in these funds. So it's impossible to get a really good representative slice of the private equity uh, funds space. You will just get one or more samples of the exposure you will not get a representative slice as if you bought a market cap weighted share in the MSCI World Index Tracker. Let's have another little clip. This time it's going to be from Succession and there's a private equity guy in Succession. So let's just hear from him. I can promise you that I am spiritually and emotionally and ethically and morally behind whoever wins. We don't say that Chewy represents private equity, but I love character, so I just wanted to show a clip. So the other thing that might be puzzling is this infatuation of large investors with private equity. There's been another very interesting report from Mel Faber talking about CalPERS. So essentially what he said, so CalPERS is a very big pension fund that's known for a very sophisticated approach to private equity. So I guess Everything that we, we discuss here, I assume they know, they're aware, I mean, they're specialists, etc. And yet what the performance they deliver based on this analysis is very much the same as a 60-40 portfolio. So you could say all their efforts are not amounting to very much. So what would you comment on that? Yeah, this, this chart is very, is very interesting. It says that... The old mixed portfolio 60-40 gives you, would have given you the same return as if you bought a more complex portfolio. At first, I think many, many so-called so sophisticated investors, they over-diversify. So they buy not only one active equity fund, but they buy maybe 100 or 200 or even more. Yes, in, the, in CalPERS, they publish their portfolio and they have over 100 private equity yeah, funds. Yeah. So they diversify so much that they risk ending up with the index, the market, but with, with a higher cost than an index fund. And that's not a winning, that's not a winning approach. And when it comes to these complex asset classes, as they are called, private equity, private credit, private real estate, if you go into accounting, there are just two, two ways to fund a firm. You have debts and you have equity. And in my view, that sort of, it sharpens the debate on asset classes. But in, because in my view, there are only two asset classes, debt and equity. So if you then take two very good representatives of debt and equity, say the S&P 500 and the US Treasury bonds, uh, it's no surprise that very sophisticated portfolios will appear as if you just invested into 60-40 stocks bonds because that's the only two asset classes that are there. 
And the only way for uh, CalPERS then to, to outperform would have been to produce consistent alpha that is beating the averages year after year. And it seems that they haven't. So they get a return, which is very, very close then to what you would expect as if they were just investing in, in stock spawns in a 60-40 mix. We now talk about private equity becoming available for investors. There was also some discussion that I saw about the Norwegian pension fund, one of the largest, that's deciding to allocate to private equity. How is the MIF able to survive so many facts? So it's a broad question, but perhaps yeah. you can answer yeah. it. Yeah, I think I want to go back to the SEM bar benchmarking data again. So people listening to this, if they go into SEM benchmarking and look at the annual reports from SEM benchmarking on the pension funds, if you look at those tables produced by SEM benchmarking, you would see, for example, that hedge funds have had very, very poor performance in the past 20, 25 years. Very poor. Still, the allocation to hedge funds has increased. So based on this example alone, I could kill the hypothesis that people invest into asset classes that have been successful. So it's, there seems to be other drivers behind what people are investing into. People don't invest into hedge funds because they have had a tremendous performance. So there must be other reasons. And I think maybe marketing. Your introduction with a video by Blackstone is an example. They have huge marketing budgets that can influence advisors, clients, customers, politicians, people sitting on the board of municipalities, media, 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 media and everything. So they have huge influence and they lobby well too in, in some places. And you can't disregard the fact that money power and some of the most moneyed persons in finance these days are people from the finance industry. And then it's just natural that their power will go also into the allocation of portfolios in pension funds and in municipalities and in endowments and in private portfolios among private people as well. So I think this mix of huge marketing budgets and pure power play could be behind some of the allocations that you see here and there in, in pension funds and big institutional clients. The next question is how should investors go about this and what can they do to be sensitive to marketing? I'd like to take a personal anecdote is that I have small kids and I walk on, I live on the seafront and everywhere on the seafront there's huge ice creams. So my kids all the time want ice creams, but I'm educating them and I hope by the time they can buy their own ice cream, they will be adults that realize that you cannot feed yourself on ice creams. But they're not educated, right? They're not protected. Yeah. They cannot protect themselves. So I'm here. So I don't yeah. know if it's a good metaphor, but it seems to be relevant to the private equity, which we say, oh, it's a VIP asset class, especially now that you can access it mm. or more people can access it. So mm. the, first, from the investor point of view, what should we do? And then maybe the regulatory question as well. Yeah, it could be a regulated question because if the marketing is too aggressive, then it may be misleading. And you have example that misleading marketing is something which a regulator uh, looks at it in the end. Apart from that, uh, it's difficult to change behavior and change incentives. So, uh, of course, this sounds as if I'm talking for my, my sick mother, so to speak, that you should go to a trusted advisor. You should go to a, an advisor that you trust. But if I can use Warren Buffett as an example, he is the world's most... Uh, successful investor in the past 
60, 70 years. He's had a return of 20% since the 1950s. So he's extremely successful. He knows active management. And still he recommends index funds for ordinary people because they don't have the same resources and capabilities that he has. So his advice to ordinary people who don't have time to read up and do all the necessary due diligence and work, he recommends ordinary people to buy a cheap index fund. And I think that is illustrative. He's a really competent guy. He has produced excellent returns over 50, 60 years. And still for ordinary people who are not in his shoes, he recommends investing in index funds. So, so that is, so to speak, my, my advice as well. If you don't have the resources, if you don't have the capability to find trusted advisors, most people can't have an advisor for their personal portfolio, then keep it simple, stupid is, is really, as far as I see it, it's a good advice. Maybe before we finish, we can talk a little bit about your role. So you're head of portfolio management at Gabler. What does it mean, let's say, on a daily basis? And what kind of service do you provide to your clients? Yeah, well, we are an advisor, as I said, and our main clients have been, used to be big pension funds, municipalities, endowments. And more and more in the past few years, we've had some family offices and bigger personal clients as well, in excess of $10 million. So we are making for them portfolio allocations and also fund selection services. My role here at, at Gabor is, well, I... I work on researching, going into depth of private equity and the private assets, for example. I've also looked at the ESG in the past few years. And we are also, for the time being, researching different types of index funds because there are some index funds that are a little bit better put together than other index funds. So I also do some research. And I'm also heading a very small group which works on portfolio management. So we are able to take a client's money and manage it according to a mandate put up together with the clients. I was interested to go a little bit in your due diligence process. What are the typical things that you might look at as a sophisticated advisor to sophisticated investors in terms of due diligence and selection <clears throat> of funds as you do sometimes? Well, when we look at active funds, because we do a lot of active investing as well, we, we predominantly look at the team. Of course, the data, the figures, the historical return and the risk and, and all these things. And we can also look into the portfolio. All these things are generic, so everybody can do that. Maybe we can do it as well as the best competition, but everybody can do that. But we also look at the team, uh, how they are set up, their background, how they are incentivized and things like that. And we are not uh, um, selecting tens or hundreds of funds, but we have just a small selection of funds that we, that we, that we believe in. So we are very, we're very aware of this over-diversification trap. However, not all of the money may go into active management, and then you also have a more rigorous process behind selecting index funds. And based on your jurisdiction and your tax position and things like that, there could be differences. There could be things that you would like to think about before buying, buying an index fund. At least for a Norwegian, there may be some issues that you need to take into account before buying these seemingly simple products. But then we are not talking about one index fund beating the other with 2% per year. But maybe one index fund may be 10 basis points, 15 basis points better than another index funds due to, due to tax or jurisdiction and the skill of the team behind the index fund as well. 
So it's very much about the team, which is also surprising the marketing brochure from Blackstone because they don't pitch our private equity funds, which they should say we perform better because we are Blackstones and I'm sure they say that as well, etc. They talk about private equity in general, which to me is surprising. My guess is that because they're the leader in the industry, if they grow the industry, they benefit mostly from it. I'm yeah. just curious about what goes into their marketing there. Yeah, it seems like they are marketing for the whole industry and not so much about themselves. So, of course, it would be much more interesting if they could put forward all the historical figures for the Blackstone funds instead of just talking about the Cambridge database, uh, which is uh, a black box or, or uh, it hasn't been investable. It would be much more interesting if they could uh, put forward all the historical data in an Excel sheet on their uh, website for people to look at and analyze. Then the community, then the community could, could assess Blackstone in, in a more objective way. But it seems like it's important for them to make some PR for the whole industry. And then they put their PR money into a commercial, which has little to do with the performance of Blackstone, but more to do with the perception, maybe, of, of private equity as something which is cool and sexy. I think that's a great suggestion for the marketing team at Blackstone. If they listen to us next year, 2024, instead of a holiday video, put some efforts into following the recommendation and gather all the data, and then we can really talk about the outperformance and everything else that you deliver. We've mentioned it already. We talk about this, Blackstone talks about the alternative era, and to some extent, I think it, it's happening. There's definitely a change. And also we talk a lot about the democratization of alternatives. Can you give the top of your mind on these developments? Yeah, well, every time one of the bigger, biggest players in, in the financial industry talks about the democratization of finance, <laughs> You should be uh, you should be wary. <laughs> well, if you, if you look at the private equity industry, it has been tremendously successful. In the 1980s, 1990s, it was a niche. And then in the past 10, 20 years, it's been growing very, very successful, successfully. And American endowments, American pension funds, maybe they have reached a level now in terms of allocation where it's not so easy to sell to these same endowments and pension funds anymore. So... If you want to broaden the market, the biggest part of the market is the man in the streets, private persons. And that's what we are seeing now, that the marketing efforts of the biggest private equity players, they are targeting the man in the streets. So here in Norway, for example, I saw one example. I think you now need just $10,000 or less to invest in, in private equity. And even that is a big amount of money for many people still it opens up private equity for much more people than in the past. So it seems to be based on observations that these private equity titans, they are now targeting ordinary people and that we will see more and more private equity funds opening up for, for, for smaller and smaller amounts of, of money and, and for the smaller customers. I think about the bias, what you see is all there is, right? It's very hard to shift your mindset when you see a chart versus a chart, a private equity mm. chart versus an S&P chart, you accept that it's the same kind of chart. You explain to us that it's not, but yeah. I think until people get their head around this, private equity has a very easy job at marketing their funds. But anyway, you've done such a great job at highlighting those issues for us that I'm very grateful. Tell us where we can follow you and keep learning from you, Tim. 
Yeah. I publish from time to time uh, posts on LinkedIn. And uh, lately I've looked at the volatility myth of private equity, where you have these distinct sources of dampening volatility in private equity. And I previously looked at the ESG, for example, which is more noise than, than coherence and, and information. So, so from time to time, I want to, to dive deeper into a space and take a look at, at that space in order to see if, if it's more based on myths and misunderstandings than on, on truth. No, absolutely. We're very grateful for your posts and your comments. So that's how I connect with Trim. Not only he responds to most, well, he responded to my comments, which we always appreciate, but also the people who follow you and discuss him make the conversation on each post extremely interesting. And really, if you want to have an in-depth look at the specific aspect of private equity, you can refine it there. Thanks for all that. And we'll put all the links, including the things we discussed in the show notes, because we want this to be a source for investors who want to explore even further than what we have the time for here today. Trim, thank you very much for your participation and wishing you all the best. Thank you very much for having me here. Thank you.